Welcome to the Art of Composing podcast. I'm John Brantingham, and together we're going to unravel the mysteries of musical composition. If you've ever wanted to know how music works, then stick around. This episode is brought to you by the Art of Composing Academy. Whether you're an absolute beginner looking to build a foundation or you're a veteran composer looking in to fill in some gaps, the Art of Composing Academy will give you that web of knowledge that's really required to feel confident in the kinds of music that you want to write. So if you're ready to connect the musical dots, head over to artofcomposing.com free and sign up for the free beginner's composing course. Our guest today is William Kaplan, the James McGill Professor of Music Theory at the Schulich School of Music at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. He is author of two of my favorite books, Classical Form, A Theory of Formal Functions for the Instrumental Music of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, which won the Wallace Berry Award from the Society for Music Theory, and the more recently published Analyzing Classical Form, An Approach for the Classroom. Dr. Kaplan studied music composition at the University of Southern California and then followed on with graduate studies at the University of Chicago, working with Leonard Meyer and others, as well as further studies at the Berlin Technical University, where he studied with Carl Dahlhaus. Dr. Kaplan served as the president of the Society for Music Theory from November 2005 to November 2007 and continues to serve on the editorial boards of 18th Century Music, Indiana Theory Review, Revista di Analisi e Teoria, Musical, I don't speak Italian, and Eastman Studies in Music. So, Dr. Kaplan, welcome to the Art of Composing podcast. Thank you so very much, and congratulations on such a nice uh, set of podcasts that you've put together and a terrific website. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to start off by asking how you became interested in studying musical form. Well, it came about in a kind of interesting way. I uh, I was studying, uh, working on my doctoral dissertation in Berlin with Karl Dauhaus, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, got my first job, actually my only job uh, so far at McGill University back in uh, 1978. And uh, I was just asked to teach a course, uh, part of the undergraduate curriculum that was uh, whose, whose topic was effectively form for the music of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. Mm-hmm. And when I started teaching the course, I realized that uh, I hadn't studied much in the way of form at all during all of my graduate education, uh, studying musicology and music theory. The theory of musical form simply wasn't uh, on the picture. It wasn't on anybody's radar at that time. So uh, I just went back to my old textbooks and uh, tried to figure out how I should approach this music. I had been, however, extremely lucky to have taken a course by Carl Dahlhaus just before I came to McGill that was on uh, sort of theories of musical form by a, uh, the way the Germans and Austrians were approaching it, particularly the work of Erwin Rotz, who turns out had been a, a student of Arnold Schoenberg and Anton Weber. So uh, I started to use those materials that I had learned in Dahlhaus's course, which were quite different from what uh, I had uh, learned in my own undergraduate education using such books as Wallace Berry's uh, uh, approach to musical form. This was back in the 1960s. And uh, I was dissatisfied with the typical texts that were being used, and I found that the work that I had learned from Dahlhaus uh, through uh, Rotz was extremely interesting. And then I discovered that it was effectively the approach to musical form that uh, Arnold Schoenberg had developed and who had published that in his um, uh, 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 
the art of musical. Right, what is I think it's book? the fundamentals of musical. <laughs> yes, fundam- it's so yeah, so crazy. It's my it's my bible of uh, <laughs> yeah. of studies. Uh, fundamentals of musical composition, exactly. So I started to bring introduce those materials into my classes and uh, slowly began to realize that there was just simply much more to do, that it was a, a ripe field for, uh, for, for research and for doing, uh, developing the theory much more extensively than what uh, Schoenberg had done. And uh, basically, I did that in the course of my teaching uh, career. It, so in other words, my research and my approach to physical form and uh, developed directly out of my teaching experience in the classroom. I was extremely lucky to have uh, had as a colleague at the time, uh, Professor Janet Schmalfeld, who subsequently left McGill mm-hmm. uh, to work at Yale University and then most recently at Tufts. And she and I did a lot of collaborative work together. We, we discussed uh, many, many points of the theory that I was developing and she was working on as well. So it was a really rich environment to, uh, to do the development of this uh, approach to musical form, both with my students at McGill and with my colleagues. Oh, that's that's actually very interesting. What? How do you conceive of musical form? I guess kind of as a big, it's a, it's a big question. But if you were had to explain it to somebody who doesn't really have an experience with it, how would you explain it to them? Sure. I guess we all know that uh, a musical composition is clearly divided into different parts. It's not usually just one gesture that's you know taken through the entire piece, but there are multiple ideas and there are various parts and sections. And the study of musical form is effectively, really quite simply, how are the different parts of the musical composition put together? How are they structured? Why are they organized the way they are? What is the logic of why one idea occurs now and then another idea occurs later and in its, and, and in its place? Uh, I think it's a fairly commonplace idea. If we think about a, a play or is organized into acts and scenes, Uh, In the same kind of way, a a musical composition is organized into larger sections, and then within those sections, there are smaller units, and then those smaller units are divided into little parts. In other words, there is a hierarchy in the the organization of musical compositions, and the study of form is an attempt to make sense out of those various parts uh, that make up a composition. Okay, so um, explain then what what exactly goes into... Your theory, how, how is your theory different from previous theories of form or other competing theories out there? Sure. Well, my approach is based on uh, a fundamental idea that was introduced by Schoenberg and developed by Rotz, which is the notion of formal function. Uh, I wasn't exactly sure myself what I thought formal functions were about until I developed the, the idea much more extensively. It took me many years sort of to figure it out. But in the end, I really think that it has to do with how musical materials express their sense of being in the temporal world. In other words, we all have a general notion that uh, that that we're at the beginning of something, and then we're in the middle of doing something, and then we bring something to a close. This is this very generalized notion of beginning, being in the middle, and ending. I think that we find that throughout musical compositions, particularly music of the 18th and 19th century, music that's written in what we call the language of tonality. And so um, my theory tries to really uh, explain how it is that various sections of a piece express the sense of their beginning something and uh, continuing on into something that might be in the middle of some kind of a formal process. And then, of course, the section needs to bring a degree of closure to itself. So the idea of how music, musical parts uh, express this 
temporal idea is at the heart of my notion of what musical, of what formal functions actually are. My theory then tries to give very technical details, explain exactly where in a piece the the sense of formal functionality is 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 expressed how it's developed by the composer what are the very specific techniques that are used and i think that's what differentiates my approach from most of the standard approaches which tend to focus on uh, oh identifying the musical materials well here's something we'll call an a section and now here's a b section and now here's a c section or something along those lines um, my attempt is to uh, provide a more unified approach to the idea of how the various parts of a musical composition are related to the temporal um, uh, ideas that I mentioned before of beginnings, middles, ends, and uh, so forth. Yeah, I, I think that was probably, when I was reading through your book the, the first time around, that was the thing that struck me as this is just a new way of conceptualizing music. It's it's this emergent feature that that comes about of how does harmony and melody and you know the rhythm and the the uh, harmonic rhythm and the surface um, you know surface rhythm all come together to create these feelings of temporality? It just the first time I read it, it blew my mind. Um, well, I, thanks so much. And I have to say that I really I really like the way you use the the term emergent. Um, I think that's an excellent way to think about it. I'm, I might start adopting it myself more regularly. Okay. <laughs> uh, the idea that the idea that musical form it's not just um, it's not something that's kind of preconceived. It's not something that's just out there as a kind of a, a shell or a framework uh, in which you just sort of pour in musical content. That's a very old-fashioned way of thinking about form. The idea that form arises out of the interaction of so many of the different musical parameters, this emergent quality. I think that's uh, that's a wonderful way to think about how form works in music. Yeah, and and what's interesting, I, you know, I'm coming from this as the standpoint of a composer, you know, mm-hmm. trying to figure out how can I integrate this, and and in particular in in film music, which I do a lot of film scoring. Um, sure. People will say, oh, you know, we don't we don't have form. The the film is the form, but. I try to tell them, well, I, I disagree that the form is how does your music relate to time? And regardless of whether you've got to have a scene change or you've got a, a quick change in the tempo or feel, you're still using the same techniques that Beethoven or Mozart would have used, just in a different way. Yes, I think so. Um, but what you point out is extremely important, too, and that is there are generalized notions that are common to lots of different musics, but then there are also very specific ways for a very particular musical style on how uh, uh, how form is is uh, understood, conceived, and best explained. One of the one of the things that uh, differentiates my approach, again, is going back to the earlier question, and I can't emphasize this enough, is that it is directed on a, a relatively uh, a narrow musical style, what's called the high classical period, Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. Uh, I think uh, one of the problems with uh, many earlier theories of form was that they tried to, to cover too broad a stylistic uh, uh, perspective. And as a result, it wasn't possible, perhaps, to make the kinds of detailed observations uh, that is associated, that, that comes from studying a, a more restricted style period. Uh, and that's something that I've tried to do. And at the same time say, well, I think some of my ideas might be transferable to other styles, but then it's up to other theorists and other composers to see how they are realized in a wide variety of musical styles. So then, um, I, you know, is anybody tracing your line of thought through the 19th and 20th century to see how it, it develops uh, beyond Beethoven? 
Yes, there have been some attempts in that direction. I've done some of it myself. I've had uh, some students who have worked uh, along those lines. Then I've had uh, others who have just gone off on their own. I think particularly um, there have been a number of people who have worked on Ravel and, and Debussy, uh, and uh, they've applied some of these ideas. Uh, there's a music theorist who's worked on Prokofiev and tried to see how that works. Of course, since Schoenberg, in some ways, is the godfather of this approach to music theory that uh, that I'm involved in, 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 his music has also been analyzed by a variety of other scholars in trying to, uh, to see uh, whether his own ideas about form are realized in his own music as well. And there's been some good cases made for that. One of the ba- major problems, of course, is that my approach is rooted so strongly in tonal harmony mm-hmm. that when music stops uh, uh, referencing uh, the, the functions of tonal harmony, then uh, it's, much le- it's, it's, it's less easy to apply in any kind of direct way the various categories of musical form that I that I propose for uh, Beethoven and so forth, and then of course in the 19th century we find altogether a kind of uh, how can I say a breaking down of of tonal thinking and therefore a kind of breaking down of some of these uh, formal functions as well. Uh, analyzing Brahms, you can do it to a degree with my approach, but many things have to be modified as well. Yeah. Now. Um... Kind of stepping back back to Beethoven and Haydn and Mozart, how do you think sure. they would have conceptualized form, or would they even be thinking form as a concept when they're composing? That's a really fa- fascinating question. I'm honestly asked this constantly just in my class yesterday. One of my students said to me, <laughs> do you think Beethoven <laughs> understood what he was doing here? And from everything that we can tell uh, from people who have studied the history of music theory, uh, it seems that there was very little in the way of explicit conceptualization of these matters by composers. Um, it, it wouldn't seem that they were able to talk at all about musical form in the way we talk about it today. But that doesn't mean they didn't entirely understand what they were doing. It's clear that they did. There's such a consistency in usage, such, such a, uh, a way in which uh, they over and over again, they do the same kinds of formal procedures. They obviously had internalized their understanding, but this understanding was never made explicit. They don't write about it. They don't, there's no way that we really know, and of course we can't talk to them today. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no way of knowing how they may have verbalized what their understanding was. We understand what they know by what they did. And of course, that's what composers do. They compose. It's music theorists. It's the job of those of us who come uh, later to say, well, how do we understand what they did? Can we make sense of what they did? Can we provide labels and pr- to procedures that they do regularly? But there's no particular evidence that they spoke anything like this in when they talked about music. Yeah, and I think um, what's, what's getting me really excited about uh, all this um, is how is your theory going to be interacting with uh, Robert Yerdingen's theories on music in the glot style or from his book music in the glot style and obviously everything that's come uh after that have you seen i know you you did an article about uh the printer and uh, closure in the printer um how how are you interacting with those kind of revelations about partimenti and these kind of stock phrases being passed down Yes, well, I'm very good friends with these theorists, uh, Giorgio Sanguinetti in Rome, uh, Bob Yerdigan, uh, who I see that you interviewed, mm-hmm. uh, and I've been following their work very closely. In fact, I, I, I was one of the reviewers 
uh, pre-publication reviewers for uh, Yerdigan's book, and so I'm I'm really very familiar with with his approach. I think it's wonderful, and it's been tremendously influential uh, on many people today, and on many uh, on my own work for that matter as well. I think though that what uh, what Yerdigan stopped a little short of doing, which uh, a number of people have recognized, is that many of the schemata that he talks about, he doesn't give always such clear form functional um, descriptions, exactly how those schemata work form functionally. Mm -hmm. There's a degree of it in his work. But I think that uh, he himself recognizes that that's another that's another level that has to be addressed. And there are uh, various music theorists. I'm thinking of Vasily Biros at uh, Northwestern University, who's a colleague of, of Yerdigan's. Uh, our, our understanding, realizing that the time now is ripe to take the schemata that, that Yerdigan has identified and try to integrate them, relate them to the sense of formal functionalities expressed in this music. And I think there's very strong ways in which that can be done. Um. So if somebody was just starting off, they have real no experience um, in formal analysis, how, how would you get somebody started and recommend that they proceed? Yeah, I, that, that's a tough question because uh, my own particular theory is strongly rooted on a very uh, solid grounding in the fundamentals of harmony. It's pretty tough to do to go very far in my own particular theoretical approach without having a, 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 a clear grasp of, har- of harmonic analysis. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm very aware that many beginning uh, composers or uh, musicians who are beginning to look at these will not necessarily have that kind of approach. So probably going back to some of the old traditional ways of thinking about form, uh, just recognizing that pieces are divided into various parts, that there are some common patterns that are used over and over again. These are referred to often as, let's say, the ternary form, where an idea is presented, something is brought in contrast to that idea, and then the idea is brought back again. That's a very generalized notion. And it can be applied to all sorts of different kinds of musical styles and all sorts of different kinds of musical forms. So we have the ternary form. We have the rondo form, where uh, ideas are, uh, an idea is, com- comes back, is, excuse me, is initially presented, something is contrasted with it, it comes back again, a new contrast is given, it comes back again. So there are some generalized, broad-scale formal patterns that have been used uh, throughout the centuries in Western music. And so that's probably a good place to start. And then once uh, a student or an interested uh, musician uh, really gets and masters the foundations of harmony, I think then what he or she could begin to uh, start studying form in a more enriched, uh, systematic kind of way. Do you have a a process that you go through when you're starting the analysis of a new piece? Well, um, I guess that there's, I've I've discussed this with my students. Again, just recently I was talking with them about this. Um, There are kind of two ways you can approach a piece. You can, if you have a, if you have a very quick and intuitive idea of what what kind of formal situation you're involved with, you can take what's what we often call a top-down approach to the analysis. That is, you can start with the general theory. Let's say, well, I think this piece is in sonata form. Okay, so I'm going to start to look and see, can I identify an exposition, a development, a recapitulation? And let's say I find something that seems like it's an exposition. I can now move down, again, top-down, and say, well, how, do I find the, the main parts of an exposition? And then 
let's say I identify the transition, and then I can say, well, how is the transition exactly structured? So you could take a kind of top-down approach if you have a already an intuition of the formal situation at hand. Now, let's say you don't. Let's say you really are not at all clear what's going on. Then I suggest you take what's called a bottom-up approach. So you just start the first couple of bars of the piece, and you say, well, what's going on here? And how does this idea group or contrast with what follows next? And you begin to build up the form from the bottom as you as you work through the piece. Those are two different um, methodologies that I think are often a, a good way. Of course, I think the most important thing is that when you first encounter a new piece, just listen to it many, many, many times. Just fully internalize it. And then start to ask yourself, well, what do I find interesting in this piece? What really stands out? What's What's exciting? What, what, what grabs me about this piece? And to try to use that as a way of moving into the analysis uh, as well. Yeah, one thing I've, I've found is after analyzing pieces, I go and I listen to new pieces, and I feel like the form is much more pal- or palpable. You know, I, I can feel it <laughs> as opposed to before I would have just listened from beginning to end, maybe not been able to divide it up in my mind. Right. Well, I have to say that probably the most important uh, experience I've had in working on this whole theoretical approach is my own personal musical education. I just hear music now in such a vastly different way than I did uh, 30 years ago, let's say, when I was starting to work on this. Uh, I just simply hear hear music very differently now. And that's why I think that uh, the study of music theory, uh, doing analysis, really can enrich your experience. I know that many musicians are worried that if they analyze a piece, it's going to lose the magic for them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that happens because you just simply are having to listen to it too much and it gets a little <laughs> bit boring. But, you know, when you come back to it again, I think that that magic can be uh, revived and discovered. And hopefully, after the study that you've made, you will have a greater and enriched experience with the piece. You will hear more in the piece. At least I'd like to believe that that's the case. Now, um, you you graduated, your undergraduate was in music composition. Do you still compose uh, often? Or? No, I really don't. I occasionally write little pop tunes just for my own interest. Okay. Uh, that was something I was doing about uh, about 20 years ago or so. I collected a bunch of them just to play for my friends. But other than that, no, I... I I discovered in the course of my studies in composition that I didn't feel that I was really a composer and that I was studying composition for the purposes of learning about music. And it was a great experience. I learned a tremendous amount uh, studying composition, but it wasn't something that I felt the need to do. I think genuine composers simply have to compose. It isn't something that they choose or they, it's just something they have to do. Just like a painter has to just paint. Um, and that I found that I was much more interested in how how is it that a piece is put together? How does this come about that that compositions work this way? So, you know, studying composition was just a great way to move into music theory, where I could then start to deal with these questions in a more formal kind of manner. Have you found that there's uh, consistent problems or questions that students bring up in your classes with regard to form? <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> there are some, well, as I said, some I get some of the same questions over and over again. Uh, what did the composer know about this? And, and I've, I've noticed that uh, the, the process of learning how to analyze pieces formally, there are always some, some of the same stumbling blocks. Uh, it's, it's as though students 
have to make the same mistakes. It's, yeah. it, we're almost obliged to make these mistakes, learn from this, these mistakes, and then and then move on. You know, in the textbook version of my book, the, the recent textbook, I added all of these little text boxes um, to the book. And taming I thought terms. that, well, <laughs> you know, things like taming the terms, focus on function, so forth mm -hmm. and so on. And I kept thinking, okay, you know, if the student will just read that text box, they won't make the mistake. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like the mistakes have to be made. And no matter how many times you, you try to warn a student, you know, be careful of this, watch out for that, try to avoid this. In some ways, these are pitfalls that just, just almost have to happen. And I, th I think it's just simply part of the, the process of learning, of maturing, of, of refining your ideas. Uh, we all make these mistakes. I, when I t speak about mistakes, I'm just saying, you know, uh, there isn't necessarily a, a complete rights and wrongs to everything, but just certain pitfalls that one runs into. And I try to help in the textbook and in my teaching, of course, I try to get them over those barriers and to move on to another level of understanding. So what is, what's your current focus for research? Are you uh, going in a different direction? Are you developing, you know, later in time, 20th century or 18th, 19th century? Actually, uh, in some sense, I'm both narrowing and expanding my interest. So I have been for the last number of years, uh, been involved in a, a large scale project looking at musical cadence. So in other words, the ending functions that, that I was talking about, how closure is brought about. Mm -hmm. So I have been focusing a lot of attention on the, the, the cadence concept. So in that sense, I've been narrowing my interest to uh, a particular formal function, namely the ending function. But at the same time, I've been expanding my interest because I've been looking back into the beginning at the early 18th century and up through the end of the 19th century. In other words, covering a broader stylistic scope than I did in my uh, in my book on musical form per se. So I have really enjoyed that. Um, I find that cadences are tremendously interesting. They're, they're uh, highly misunderstood. They create lots of pitfalls of the type that I was mentioning before. So many uh, uh, aspects of, of analyzing form really depend upon a careful understanding of cadence. So the current project I'm working on is looking at cadences from the early Baroque, no, no, excuse me, not the early Baroque, but the high Baroque in the early 18th century through the various style periods, the Gallant period, the classical period, of course, the early Romantic, and then into the mid to late 19th century. And that's what my current project is about. And I've been thoroughly enjoying working on composers other than just Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, <laughs> yeah. for instance. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I look forward to seeing that. I, I'm a big Mahler fan, so and I've always been curious oh, about yes. how he he has closure where there's apparently no real cadence, you know, harmonically. Um, so I this is true, and so I I'm trying to deal with some of this. I think that what I'll be doing is effectively introductory. I think there will be. Uh, even after this uh, big book, if it ever gets finished and published, I think it will only be a kind of starting point for uh, all sorts of uh, detailed investigations that could be uh, pursued. What uh, do you have a, a working title for the book yet, or? Well, I've uh, I guess at the moment uh, it's simply called Cadence: A Study of Closure in Tonal Music. That's my working title. Right. Do you do you have a projection when you think it'll be done, or is it just too early to tell? Uh, <laughs> Well, I've drafted uh, most, of, I have three more chapters to draft, and I've got about seven chapters completed at different stages. Uh, I'm at the process right now of trying to put together a proposal to see if I can get some publisher to actually agree to publish this book. Mm -hmm. uh, it's turning out to be very big, so uh, 
hard to say how long this is going to take. I think another couple of years for sure. Okay. Well, um, you know, that that's basically for the show. Thanks for coming on. Um, oh, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I hope that this has been uh, interesting to you and that uh, I hope that your listeners enjoy and continue to uh, be interested in music, music composition, and all of its related aspects. Yeah, no, I, I think this everybody's going to be very excited about this. I mean, I've, I've been talking about your books for years now, so uh, I, I'm excited that you came on the show, and I'm sure the audience is going to love it. Well, thank you so much, and good luck with your project, and uh, all the best. Okay, thank you. It was good talking to you. Bye. Bye. Okay, thanks for listening to the Art of Composing podcast. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. It's been one that I've been looking forward to for uh, actually years now. I, I've been wanting to interview him, and the time was right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, if you like this style, this format, I'm trying to do f a few more interviews here. Just let me know. You can shoot me an email or leave a review on iTunes. And, uh, yeah, we've got more exciting stuff coming up in the future. I'm currently working on a course on orchestration, which um, hopefully I'll have done in the next few months. So if you're interested in learning orchestration, that'll be up at the Academy. But in the meantime, if you want to get yourself prepared, then uh, check out my Music Composition 101 and 201 courses. 101 is all about learning the fundamentals. It's about setting a foundation for yourself that's really solid so we go over harmony, melody, we go over form, uh, putting it all together, writing complete pieces. 201 is all about development. How can you take those skills and write something that's like four, five, six minutes long? It's, it's something that I think a lot of composers face and they don't know how to handle. So go to artofcomposing.com and check it out. And if you've never signed up for the free course, now's your time. Here's the time now to start learning composition. It's probably something you've put off for a while. So go to articomposing.com slash free, sign up for the free course, eventually 101, 201, and orchestration. Till next time, I'm John Brantingham, and this was fun.